Love Talk Radio. Welcome to the Parkinson's Recovery Radio Network. I'm Robert Rogers, your host, the founder of Parkinson's Recovery, and get this, 2004. We have been around almost two decades now providing information, support, and resources for persons and their families who happen to currently be diagnosed, diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. My guest today is an individual I've known for a number of years, natural pharmacist Ross Pelton, who has had a very large influence on me. I consider Ross really my mentor when it comes to natural approaches and those that are prescription medications that help us be able to return to a state of health and wellness. In other words, what are the underlying factors that cause illness What can we do in order to be able to address those factors? So I am really excited that Ross is available today to be uh, on the show and to talk about a book that he has recently published on something I don't know a great deal about. So I'm excited to hear all about this new discovery and this new option that people can pursue for being able to uh, have a way to address illness and also have a way to live longer and healthier. Ross, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the opportunity to be a guest with Parkinson's Recovery Radio. Well, Robert, thanks for inviting me. I always appreciate our discussions. And um, you having uh, had this program going for 20 years now is quite an accomplishment. And so you've provided a format and a forum that provides health information for a lot of people with neurological diseases. And I just applaud you for being on the front line as a, a health warrior and a health educator yourself. Thank you, Ross. That's very kind. Well, you, you've written a book. And so tell everybody about it. What's up with this new or at least more recent discovery? Sure, Robert. I'm, I'm really excited about this. I'm um, in addition to being the natural pharmacist, I have been passionate about health for a long time. And so I started studying and reading and then writing books about different aspects of health. This is my 12th book now. And the title of it is Rapamycin. And Rapamycin is the most successful life extension drug that's ever been discovered. I got introduced to rapamycin about four years ago when I was at the anti-aging conference in Las Vegas. And Bill Falloon, who's the co-founder and president of the Life Extension Group, uh, gave a talk on life extension. And part of his discussion, uh, his presentation was about rapamycin. So that's the first time I'd heard about rapamycin. Um, I've just followed it for the next several years. And whenever I saw something about it, I would read it. But about a year ago, I listened to some podcasts by Peter Atia, who's one of my, he's a medical doctor, his podcast is called The Drive, and he had several episodes where he interviewed key scientists who'd been in the rapamycin field, studying rapamycin or some of the other things that have surfaced as a result of rapamycin research. So that really sparked my interest because that gave me the scientific background um, that I could integrate into my background as a pharmacist with my, my knowledge about uh, biochemistry and medicine and health and so forth. But so about a year ago, I developed something that borders on either a passion or maybe even a neurosis. <laughs> I, I realized that I had to write this book. 
Um, the title of my book more completely is Rapamycin Autophagy and Treating mTOR Syndrome. Now, I realize most people are not familiar with those terms, and some people shy away from my book when they re read terms like that that they're not familiar with. But I fully believe, Robert, that these will become common household names in a short time because this is a whole new understanding of the biolo biology of aging and the science of life extension and anti-aging. Um, so let me back up to the beginning and give our listeners a little background. Um, rapamycin was discovered back in the 1960s when a group of scientists from Canada made a trip to Easter Island looking for sources for new antibiotics and new antifungal drugs. Now, the reason they chose Easter Island as the destination for this uh, scientific expedition is kind of interesting in and of itself. Easter Island for centuries has been overrun by wild horses. There are more, were more wild horses on Easter Island. Scientists have learned that all the humans that lived on Easter Island went barefoot all the time. And in areas where horses are prevalent, you usually find tetanus bacteria in the soil. So the scientists were interested if these humans living on Easter Island going barefoot all the time, they're exposed to tetanus, but they're not getting tetanus. Is there something in their environment or in their soil that's preventing them from getting tetanus? So the scientists took a wide range of soil samples from different parts of the island uh, back to their labs, and in the research, they discovered a drug that is produced by a strain of bacteria, and the drug, they gave the name rapamycin. Now, the rapamycin name for this drug came from the fact that the indigenous people on Easter Island, um, the name for Easter Island is Rapa Nui. So the scientists named the drug rapamycin. So consequently, <clears throat> there's been about 25 years of research now trying to figure out the mechanisms of action of rapamycin. How does it extend lifespan and health span? And there are really two main themes in my book, Robert. One is the story of rapamycin. But I think a much more important story that has emerged is the story of mTOR and autophagy. And so I want to take some time to <clears throat> explain these terms so that our listeners will know how rapamycin integrates and relates to these terms mTOR and autophagy. To begin with, um, the way rapamycin works, when it is absorbed across the cellular membrane and gets inside a cell, it binds with a protein. And David Sabatini discovered this protein, which is the mechanism of action for rapamycin, and he named this program, uh, this, this, excuse me, this protein, the mechanistic target of rapamycin. That's a small m, capital T, capital O, capital R. So mTOR is simply the protein that rapamycin binds to when it gets absorbed inside a cell. Now mTOR is a primary when nutrients are available to a cell, 
mTOR activates signals telling the cell to use these nutrients to build new proteins, build new enzymes, build new cellular components. Go, 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 build, build, build. The other half of the equation is autophagy. And in 2016, a Japanese scientist named Yoshinori Osumi won the 2016 Nobel Prize for his discovery of autophagy. And autophagy is the mechanism in cells that is active. And when nutrients are not available, our cells are able to target old, damaged cellular components and break them either for elimination, which is cellular detoxification, or to reutilize these cellular components to build new proteins, new enzymes, new cellular components. So these two processes, mTOR and autophagy, counter-regulatory mechanisms. mTOR functions when nutrients are available. Autophagy functions when nutrients are not available. The big problem is that mankind, most of mankind these days, is terribly out of balance in this mTOR autophagy mechanism. For 99.9% of human evolution, mTOR and autophagy were in balance. And I've done some, some drawings that I have in my book that I try to explain this. I have a drawing that looks like a little teeter-totter, a horizontal line sitting on top of a, a fulcrum that can balance either way. And so when mTOR and autophagy are balanced, everything's functioning fine. But when we stop to think of mTOR being a sensor of nutrients, and for most of human evolution, People did not get up in the morning and go to the refrigerator and pull out milk and start making a bowl of cereal or cooking eggs. People did not eat three meals a day for most of human evolution. And historians and anthropologists and so forth speculate that for most of human evolution, which is five to seven million years, with Homo sapiens evolving in the last 200 to 300,000 years, to that time, probably ate only one time a day. And consequently, they spent about four hours a day digesting their one meal, which means they went 20 hours a day without taking in nutrients. And that was mTOR autophagy balance for most of human evolution. But a big change started to happen about 300 years ago. Um, in the 1700s, refrigeration began to be developed. And by the 1920s and 1930s, household refrigerators became available. And within a couple of decades, almost all households in America had refrigerators and freezers. So food could easily be stored for longer periods of time. And then after World War II, food packaging and processing became a big business and preservatives for food. And now we have all these convenience stores where the problem is that food is available all the time now and people eat all the time relative to our ancient ancestors that only ate one meal a day and spent four hours a day digesting their food. So these days, people get up in the morning, say 7 o'clock, and they eat breakfast and lunch and dinner and mid-meal snacks and an afternoon snack and dessert after supper and maybe a 
cocktail in the evening or something. From 7 a.m. until 7 p.m. is 12 hours, and then another four hours after dinner to digest that food. That's a total of 16 hours a day of eating and digesting food, where for most of human evolution, it was only four hours. And with modern man eating so much all the time, all day, there's a tremendous decrease in autophagy. And so people are not getting the opportunity to detoxify their cells, to rebuild their body with healthy new cellular components. And I think, Robert, that this is a fundamental problem underlaying the declining health in mankind. And when people challenge me about the declining health of mankind, I bring up the fact that in the 1950s and 60s, when I was growing up as a teenager, we didn't have an epidemic of cancer. We didn't have an epidemic of heart disease and so forth. These days, I say we have an epidemic of epidemics. We have an epidemic of cancer and heart disease and high blood pressure and strokes and diabetes and obesity and arthritis and Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, um, not to mention things like autism and ADHD and fatty liver disease. And now we've got the COVID uh, crisis and, and the opioid crisis. We have an epidemic of epidemics. The health of mankind has seriously been declining in the last century. And I think one of the fundamental reasons, Robert, is that there's this tremendous imbalance between mTOR and autophagy, and this is what rapamycin does. Rapamycin goes into a cell and binds with mTOR, so it does a partial inhibition of mTOR, which allows autophagy time to be activated and start to detoxify our cells and do the rebuilding processes in cells. And so that's the, the big news, the big story about rapamycin and how it relates to these the mTOR and autophagy, which are really a new understanding of health and longevity and cellular metabolism and ultimately the aging process of every cell in your body and the aging process of the organism, whether it's a, a dog or a mouse or a human, autophagy is really critical, and most of us are not getting enough time. So let me pause there for a minute, Robert, because I've been talking nonstop for several minutes since we got started, but that's a brief overview of rapamycin and why it's important, because of it, it's balancing the mTOR autophagy uh, cellular mechanisms. Ross, this is all totally fascinating to me. My question is, as people are listening, they're thinking, well, I've been eating three meals a day for my entire life. I don't think I'd be able to eat just one meal. What would you say to somebody who said, I don't think I can make that kind of an adjustment? Well, I, I recognize that that's a reaction for most people. Um, we love our food, and we eat it all the time. <laughs> but I, my, um, my mission, and I'm a health educator. So I want people to know how and why these concepts are important. So if people understand the significant benefits to time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting, they might be more motivated to try it. Since I learned about this about almost a year ago now, I do intermittent fasting most days. Um, I have my first meal around anywhere from 12 to 1 o'clock, and I'll have my dinner with my wife around 6 or 7 o'clock. 
And so I go from roughly I'm, I'm digesting food for a while, but let's say I go from 8 p.m. until 8 a.m. the next day. That's 12 hours. And I go from 8 a.m. until noon without eating anything. When I wake up the following morning, that's another four hours. So that's 16 hours without food. So I try to consume all my food in a day within the eight-hour window of, say, noon until 8 p.m. And then you go 16. A lot of people are finding that that's not as hard as they think it is. When I get up in the morning, I drink coffee. I have several cups of coffee throughout the morning. It's okay to drink herbal teas or coffee without cream or sugar or as much water as you want. I'll share another personal story with you, Robert. Uh, about a month ago, my wife was gone for a couple of weeks on a, a retreat. Um, complete days, which 48 hours. I was amazed how easy it was for me. I was not craving food. I did not feel horrible because I was hungry all the time. Um, and I wasn't thinking about food all the time. I realized that I like to eat and I like to munch on health-oriented things, but I don't need to. And when I set my mind to not munch all the time, it was a fairly easy transition for me. The second week that my wife was gone, I did a three-day fast, consuming just water, herbal tea, and coffee. And that also was remarkably easy for me. Now, I'm not saying that this is going to be easy for everyone, but um, I want everybody to understand how important it is to exercise some form of intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating because there's tremendous health benefits to cutting down the amount of time you're consuming food and creating more time for autophagy to function. Now, the wonderful benefit of rapamycin is that for people that don't have the discipline to do fasting, rapamycin for you. Rapamycin gets absorbed into the cell. It binds with mTOR, which partially inhibits mTOR. So rapamycin is really a caloric mimicking drug. It mimics calorie restriction because calorie restriction shuts down mTOR. Rapamycin does the same thing. Now, there's another topic I want to get into that explains why there's some difficulty in getting rapamycin widely accepted. When rapamycin was first discovered, scientists found that it had some powerful antifungal properties, so they started developing it as an antifungal drug. Before too long, they realized that rapamycin suppressed the immune system. So all that research came to a screeching halt. But in September of 1999, the FDA approved rapamycin as a drug that people who have a kidney transplant can take to prevent rejection of their new kidney. So rapamycin got approved as a drug to prevent rejection of a new organ in people who get an organ transplant because those people need to be on an immune-suppressing drug all the time. A couple of years later, rapamycin got FDA approval for several different types of solid tumor cancers. These FDA approvals for either prevention of 
organ rejection in kidney transplant patients or as several forms of chemotherapy. These are barriers against rapamycin's acceptance by medical doctors because most doctors don't consider giving an immune-suppressing drug or chemotherapy to people who are health enthusiasts who want to extend their lifespan. But this all changed when a physician by the name of Joan Manick, uh, M-A-N-N-I-C-K, Joan Manick was working for Novartis, which is one of the huge multinational drug companies. Joan Manick had the... uh, the great um, liberty bosses so she could study anything she wanted to do. So Joan devised a study, a human clinical trial with elderly humans, 65 years and older. And the reason she selected elderly humans is that in doing a human clinical trial with rapamycin, she had to find a marker that would be able to um, delineate improvement, be able to prove that there was benefit to the patients. And she chose elderly people, and what she chose to measure in these elderly people was the function of their immune system. Now, in elderly people, people 60, 70, 80 years old, all of these people have a significant decline in the function of their immune system compared to people in their 20s and 30s. Progress and progression of the aging process. So in these elderly people, people divided them into four different groups and gave them a rapamycin-like drug. Um, had the, the dose drug she uses is called RAD001. It's a, a rapalog. It's a, an analog of rapamycin. It has virtually identical function and activity to rapamycin. And she gave these individuals either 0.5 milligrams every day. A second group got five milligrams once a week. A third group got 20 milligrams once a week. And a fourth group was the placebo group. Everybody took their medications for six weeks. Then there was a two-week washout period, and all these elderly people were administered the seasonal flu vaccine. When she checked and evaluated the immune system response to the different doses of rapamycin, she found out that the people who were taking five milligrams once a week had a significant boost to the function of their immune system, approximately a 20% increase in their immune system functionality. And in elderly people, if you get a 20% boost to your immune system, that's a really significant factor that will likely improve your health and your longevity. So that was the first clinical trial that proved that low-dose rapamycin, just taking once a week rather than every single day, as in kidney transplant patients and chemotherapy, just the once-a-week dose, episodic once a week, significantly allowed autophagy time to start to function, which significantly caused a boost in the immune system. Now, if we look at the animal studies, Robert, virtually every type of disease known has been shown to benefit from rapamycin therapy. Animals get the same diseases we get. They get cancer, they get heart disease, they get metabolic syndrome, they get neurological diseases like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. And so in all of these animal models, rapamycin significantly delays the onset of all these age-related diseases, improves the health of the animals, and slows down their aging process. So that's the... Um, 
what do we want to call it, the, the excitement, I guess, about using rapamycin in humans is that there's the, the belief that this is also going to benefit humans in much the same way. Um, another exciting study with rapamycin, it was a mouse study, but they selected elderly mice, 20-month-old mice are roughly the age of 65 to 70-year-old humans. They started these elderly mice on rapamycin. They still got life extension. The females got 14% life extension. The males got 9% life extension. So the excitement here, Robert, is that even when we start elderly humans on rapamycin, there will likely be significant health improvements and life extension benefits. So that's um, some more background that just indicates that rapamycin is a really exciting drug and let me just toss one more piece of uh, information in here for our listeners that uh, shows how rapid interest in ex- rapamycin is accelerating. In this, this year, in the year 2022, there's been a 900% increase in Google searches for rapamycin. Google tracks all these data. And so it's, Uh, And Google published this data. So this is not my information. This is information from Google saying that this year alone, in 2022, there's been a 900% increase in searches on Google for rapamycin. Another statistic I think that's compelling is that in 2022 alone, there's been 317 medical clinical studies on rapamycin that have been published in the medical literature. Um, and in clinicaltrials.gov, which is the U.S. government's online listing of all clinical trials, there's 791 rapamycin clinical trials listed. So there's an enormous amount of scientific interest in rapamycin. And when I got interested in it, I realized there are thousands and thousands of scientific studies and articles on these topics, rapamycin, mTOR, and autophagy, uh, all of this information in the medical literature, but nobody had written a book about it for the general public. So that became my passion, to write a book summarizing all of this new emerging information about rapamycin and the importance of mTOR and autophagy, And one of the things I say about myself in my bio, Robert, is that I'm bilingual. My two sciences, excuse me, the two languages that I speak, one is English, of course, but the other one is science. And I can talk about (laughs) these scientific terms so that non-scientific people can understand it. And I did a, a presentation at a bookstore here in my hometown a week ago. And when I started, I asked the audience, their hand. Anybody that does not understand English, please raise your hand. Of course, nobody raised their hand. They can all understand English. And I tell these people, you speak English, you're intelligent people. Yes, these are new terms for you. You haven't heard of rapamycin and mTOR and autophagy before, but I'm going to talk about them for the next hour. And by the time I'm done, you will have heard enough information about these terms that they will stick in your mind, you will understand the significance of them, and you will be educated about rapamycin, mTOR, and autophagy. And one of the things I encourage people who read my book to do is get somewhat conversant about it and then take my book and go to your doctor and ask your doctor to write a prescription for you for rapamycin because it is a prescription drug and you do need to get your doctor on board to write a prescription for it. Um, 
there are lots of doctors who understand this and will write prescriptions. There's a doctor by the name of Alan Green, and I have had a, a personal interview with another. Alan Green has over seven. Um, another point on like Robert is that for people who cannot find a local doctor or their personal primary care physician is not willing to take the risk to write a prescription for rapamycin for them, there are some physicians who are doing telemedicine visits, just a phone call. Spend a half an hour on the line with a doctor, and the telemedicine doctor will write you your prescription for rapamycin that you can take to your pharmacy and get it filled. Um, some people are also ordering rapamycin from companies in India, and I track these people and their comments about their success of getting their drug. Um, they are getting their drug successfully from India. It takes four to six, sometimes eight weeks for the drug to come through the mail, but it's not being confiscated by customs, and um, the payments are going through and they're receiving the drug. So that's another way some people are getting rapamycin. Um, and let me share one more comment that I, I think will be interesting for people to hear. Um, when I got my prescription for rapamycin, I took it to my local drugstore, Ashland Drug, gave it to the pharmacist. He looked it up and he said, uh, this is available, but I'm not going to order it for you. The reason he refused to order it for, you, uh, for me is that rapamycin is a fairly expensive drug. For a bottle of 102 milligram tablets, the price is over, well over $3,000, the wholesale price of the pharmacy. So if they ordered it for me, I'd get a few tablets in my prescription, and they'd have a lot of money tied up in their inventory that's not turning over. So I took my prescription to the local chain drugstore, Rite Aid, and they don't have as tight inventory controls as local independently owned pharmacies. So the pharmacist at Rite Aid ordered it for me, and I now get my monthly rapamycin prescription filled for a $20 copay on my insurance program. So that's also helpful for people to know that they might need to go to a chain drugstore to get it filled. And if you have a program um, where you get uh, your insurance medications covered with just a copay, there's a likelihood that you'll be able to get rapamycin for a reasonable copay. To you for a moment. So it sounds like people may have a challenge if they go to their medical professional and the response will be, well, I'm sorry, but this is only FDA approved for kidney transplants and for persons who have certain types of cancers. It's not approved for a person that has neurological challenges, so I'm not going to prescribe this. But what you're saying, as I understand it, Ross, is yes, that's a possibility, but there are other medical professionals that have a good understanding of the benefits of this and that would be able to, if a person approached them or had a consultation with them, prescribe uh, this for them. It also sounds like if a person doesn't have insurance that would cover the medicine, it could be prohibitively expensive. Is that a fair summary? Um, yes, it is pretty expensive if you're going to pay out of pocket for it. Um, so that, that is one barrier. But uh, those people are going to um, India and getting it imported uh, for cheaper price than they can pay cash here in the United States. Um, I, I have a whole list of 
studies on rapamycin and Parkinson's disease. I will send these to you so you can post them in the show notes for people. But just for uh, our discussion here, um, here's one of the studies. Rapamycin protects against neuron death in in vitro and in vivo models of Parkinson's disease. And the authors of that study in their conclusion made the following comment. We report that rapamycin protects neurons from death in both cellular and animal toxin models of Parkinson's disease. So I've got a whole list of different studies like this and the comments from the authors. I'll send these to you so you can post them for people that come to your Parkinson's recovery programs. They can see these uh, studies that have been published and take these studies to their doctor to show their physician that rapamycin has been studied in Parkinson's disease models and has been shown to provide benefits to Parkinson's disease in these models, and mostly mice models. Uh, but again, uh, we get a lot of our, our information in using uh, animal studies. Uh, and so just wanted to really make it clear to all of our listeners that there are, oh, six or eight studies here that I've got categorized. I'll send you the link where rapamycin has been studied in models of Parkinson's disease. When an individual succeeds in getting a medical prescription for rapamycin, so do they take one capsule a day or more? Uh, great question. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, rapamycin um, comes in two milligram tablets. And so the most commonly utilized dose based on the human clinical trial that Dr. Joan Manick did where she showed that five milligrams once a week was the sweet spot. So most people are taking three of the two milligram tablets once a week. So that's six milligrams once a week. A number of people are um, working with physicians who have a um, – a relationship with the compounding pharmacy, and there are a number of compounding pharmacies that are making five milligram capsules for people. So that's another um, possibility. I think this uh, whole area of rapamycin is a tremendous new opportunity for compounding pharmacies. But I, I will emphasize that this is really the Wild West, sort of. Um, there's a lot we don't know yet. We don't know what the optimal dose is. We don't know what the optimal frequency of taking a dose is. And I expect that it will be different for different people. Um, so there's a lot of studies that need to be done yet. But I think there's enough research that has been done and enough people have been taking this over a period of time to realize that the benefits of taking rapamycin far, far outweigh any of those side effects. And this is not just my opinion. A number of the top rapamycin scientists have made this statement that the, there's very few side effects and the side effects are usually either preventable or reversible. And um, people, for example, one of the most side effects, some about 10% of people get mouth ulcers, a little ulcer in the inside of their mouth or on their lip. It's annoying, it's kind of painful, but these do go away in a couple of weeks and then people keep taking rapamycin, it does not come back. So this is an example of one of the types of side effects. Um, if people take a dose that's too high, they could become anemic, they could get low levels of hemoglobin, they might get elevated triglycerides and cholesterol readings. I encourage people to go to the lab 
to get their doctor to prescribe um, lab reports and get a baseline on these lab reports so that after you start taking rapamycin, you can have a baseline to refer to. But most people take this and don't have any problems and start realizing significant benefits. Um, one of the biggest benefits has to do with weight loss. And you no, know, obesity is certainly one of the most serious health epidemics of our time. Um, it's a huge epidemic in the United States and increasingly around the world as people are eating more processed food and eating three meals a day and not getting any time in autophagy. So here's one study with rapamycin where the scientists chose a strain of mice that are selectively bred to develop obesity and type 2 diabetes at a very young age. So they, they selected these mice, divided them into two groups, and starting at age two months, they gave one group of mice rapamycin, and the second group was the control group. And they went for six months. At the end of six months, the evaluation showed that the mice that were treated with rapamycin had gained 58% less body weight than the control group, and the rapamycin-treated mice also had 33% less fat mass and improved insulin sensitivity. So studies like this, Robert, in animal models are making a lot of the medical community realize that rapamycin might be an appropriate drug to treat obesity. It's really an appropriate drug to treat virtually everything. And this is one of the complaints about rapamycin because the animal studies show that it improves almost all age-related diseases. So people kind of are skeptical and say it's too good to be true. What people need to understand is that rapamycin is working at a fundamental level of cellular metabolism. And so when you correct this mTOR and autophagy ratio with rapamycin, every single cell in your body starts to work better. And the thing I have personally noticed over nine months is I've lost about 15 pounds, and most of the weight I've lost is in my love handles around my waist. They call it visceral abdominal fat. And in the animal studies, when weight loss pomycin therapy is reported, they are able to determine that it's mostly this visceral abdominal fat, which is where the weight loss occurs. So that's exciting for obesity and metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes and all these types of diseases that are involved with metabolism. But I think the, the studies on Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease are very exciting. Um, these studies in animals also show that it improves cognition and memory. Animals in a water maze do better times and improved outcomes when they're on rapamycin. So it's improving intelligence. It's improving cognition. It's it's retaining cognition rather than having it slide down into dementia. Um, so there's just a lot of excitement on all fronts for rapamycin. I, I think that most people alive today can benefit significantly from rapamycin. Uh, one caveat here, I'm often asked, how young can we start to use or take rapamycin? You would never give rapamycin to a child or a young adult because those are the times of rapid growth. 
an mTOR recognizes or senses the availability of nutrients and gives the signals to the cells to grow and build. So you don't want to shut down the growth mechanism during period when children and young adults are undergoing rapid growth. But my feeling is that by age 40 or 50, people can start to safely take rapamycin. And people with different levels of comorbidities and, and, and health problems that start to develop, um, I think the people that are more ill can probably get more benefit because um, there's more improvement to make. But I think um, early young adulthood is the time that this can start to be considered. And now it looks like uh, even in elderly people, you can get significant benefits. And one of the uh, key figures in the rapamycin field of science has now come out recently and said he feels that elderly people can probably get even more benefit by taking increased doses, higher doses. But again, this is new, a new area of research, so we really don't have the answer for speculating on a lot of stuff. But keep in mind that rapamycin has, was approved by the FDA in September of 1999. So it's been an FDA-approved drug for well over 20 years, and thousands and thousands of people have been taking it successfully. So it's just the fact that for life extension, this is a new area. And we need to understand that rapamycin is really improving the biology of aging, slowing down the onset of age-related diseases. And I like to emphasize it's not just about increasing lifespan. It's about increasing health span. You want to increase the healthy years you have. Increasing your lifespan isn't too meaningful if you're in a wheelchair and on an oxygen tank. We want to increase health span and compress the time of morbidity into a very small period of time at the very end of your life. That's the promise of rapamycin. It's very evident then from the research evidence that rapamycin can address many different illnesses and challenges. Would it also be recommended that a person uh, that is over 50 or 60 who is totally healthy, has no health problems whatsoever, might also consider this as an option? Great question, and the answer is absolutely yes, because everybody is going to experience the aging process. And sometime, everybody is going to have a, develop some form of age-related diseases. Rapamycin slows down that process in everyone. And so, yes, even healthy people. In fact, I'd say the largest community of people who are taking rapamycin now are the community of life extension enthusiasts, people that are involved in life extension and anti-aging. Um, they, they see the light, and they want to stay healthier longer. But um, my job is to try to uh, get this information in front of the general public so that they realize that this is for them also. Ross, how can people get your book? Uh, thanks for asking, Robert. Um, the Life Extension Group uh, was very kind to support the publication of my book. And so people can order my book from lifeextension.com forward slash R-A-P-A. So lifeextension.com forward slash RAPA. And uh, if you read my book, I would appreciate it if, 
people would write a review and post it on Amazon because a lot of small comments make a big difference. And I just uh, appreciate the help that any reader of my book can give us because um, if somebody reads my book and appreciates it and feels that it's important, I hope that they'll share it with their parents and their grandparents, their friends, their colleagues, help spread the word uh, that rapamycin can help improve your health, delay the onset of age-related diseases, and increase your health span. Is the book also available as a download? Uh, yes, thanks for asking that question. It is, uh, my book is available on Amazon.com, both as a paperback and in the Kindle version, so people can order the electronic version also. Ross Belton, when people think back on listening to this amazing and incredible and exciting interview about rapamycin one week from now, what do you most want them to remember? Well, I hope they'll remember how to order the book and be motivated to buy the book and read it because the purpose of my book is to accelerate people's learning curve about rapamycin. And as I mentioned, I'm bilingual. I speak science and I speak English. So I've written this book, and a lot of people have complimented me saying, this is, this is something I can understand. It makes sense. It's important. Um, so what I really hope people will do is order the book and get educated about rapamycin, and then be motivated to ask their physician to write them a prescription for rapamycin. How can listeners get in touch with you personally, Ross? Um, my website is naturalpharmacist.net, and people can go there and sign up for my website, and I periodically send out newsletters, although I haven't done that too, too regularly lately. But I, I post articles on there about um, my book and the availability of it. And I'll also tell our listening audience here, Robert, um, book sales have been going so fast that now we're almost out. So I am scrambling to do a second edition of my book. And in the second edition, I plan to add several new chapters about new information on rapamycin that has come out since the publication of my first edition. So stay tuned for edition number two sometime. I hope to have it ready by sometime in October so that we can have the book ready for RADFest, which is the big life extension conference that will be held in uh, San Diego. Ross, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for providing this incredibly useful and helpful information about this, this new anti-aging option that, quite frankly, I knew nothing about until I was able to connect with you on this radio show interview. Thank you so much for writing the book. I look forward to getting the book and writing a review on Amazon. This is an exciting opportunity for anyone who is interested in finding ways to improve their health and wellness. Well, thanks, Robert. Let me just make one closing comment. Um, I don't want to give out my personal email address because I could be inundated with thousands and thousands of emails. But let me encourage our listeners, if um, there's any key questions they have, send them to Parkinson's Recovery, and you can kind of just determine if there's a lot of people asking the same question. I'm happy to respond to questions and put up some answers that we can post on Parkinson's Recovery. Great idea. So you can send that question or that inquiry to my email, and it's easy to remember. It's my first name, Robert, R-O-B-E-R-T, at 
Parkinson's Recovery.com, and I'll be happy to forward that inquiry to Ross. So again, Ross, thanks so much. Uh, I we've been talking about this interview now for over a year, so I just have yeah. to say I'm so excited we've finally been able to get all this uh, information out to the general public. Thanks to you, Robert. I appreciate the opportunity, and I appreciate all your support. Well, of course, it's uh, an honor and a privilege, that's to be sure. And that's what's happening here on the shores of the Puget Sound, where all the women are smart, all the men are, of course, handsome, and all of the children are profoundly loved. Know that by the simple fact that you have been listening to this incredible interview with natural pharmacist Ross Pelton, that indeed you are traveling down the road to recovery in your own time, making your own choices, and realizing that, in fact, you are having a successful journey down the road to recovery. Thank you so much for your interest in all of the work that we have been doing here at Parkinson's Recovery, providing information, resources, and support to persons who happen to be currently diagnosed with neurological challenges. Thanks so much for being a part of what we do here at Parkinson's Recovery. And thanks again to Ross Pelton for being able to be available as a guest here on this fascinating topic about rapobiosin. Thanks so much. Good day.